Amen, Lord, we just thank you for that truth this morning. We thank you that, that the battle that we fight in this life with sin, both inside our own hearts, but also just living in a sinful world, that that battle truly has already been won. We thank you for everything that you've done. We thank you for who you are, the eternal God, that you, you hold all things in your hand, that, that this moment in time, uh, you're not just sovereign over this moment, Lord. You've planned this since the very beginning, since eternity past. And that because of your faithfulness, both in the past and in the present, we can look forward and trust in your faithfulness for the future as well. Lord, we ask that you just open our hearts this morning to uh, have us believe what you would have us believe and, and say and do the things you would have us say and do from your word this morning. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. I do just want to ask for your patience before we get going. Uh, whatever sickness has run through my family the last couple of days is just an absolute work of the devil. I'm convinced of it, and I am, uh, I'm still in the middle of it a little bit. And so um, I'm going to try to get to the point this morning. I'm going to try to keep it uh, relatively short and, uh, and get through this without too much coughing or, I don't know, hopefully, hopefully nothing worse than that, but... But bear with me if you would. We're going to be at the end of Romans 16 this morning, finishing up the book of Romans. Uh, if you are visiting with us, um, this entire year we've just been going through the book of Romans, and, uh, and here we are at the very end of our journey this morning. And so we'll be wrapping up uh, not only chapter 16, but the entire book, and we'll be doing so by looking here at the last, the last few verses, starting in verse 25. And so follow along with me, I'll read here Romans 16, 25 to 27. As we get started, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you may remember I mentioned uh, that one of my, my guilty pleasures as a, uh, as a book reader growing up was that I, I always I had to read the back of the book uh, before I started the book. You remember that? Um, and if I was really disciplined, I might get through the first few pages uh, and then I turned to the back page and read what it said, but I always had to read the end, the last page, before I started the book. Um, but one series of books that I, I particularly enjoyed was written by Ted Decker, if you've heard of him. He's a, he's a Christian author, but he writes um, kind of fictional novels. And uh, he has a series of books called The, the Circle Series. Uh, there's four books in the series, and they're all, they're all titled uh, just colors. There's black, red, white, and green. And it's written in such a way that the quote-unquote last book, it can serve as either a sequel or a prequel to the entire series, meaning that you can, you can legitimately end or begin with the same book, making the whole series a legitimate circle. Now, for those of you who are readers out there, uh, without even reading the books, you can imagine just how frustrating this would be, right? Uh, four books in, they're not small books either, like they're, they're good, they're good chunks of pages, 
four books in, and we just want some closure by the end of all that, right? Don't read the Circle series if you want closure. But the basic plot line of the, the story is that Thomas Hunter, the main character, he lives in these two different realities. One of them is more uh, akin to, to, to like real world as we know it. He works in a coffee shop in that world. Um, but then the other world, it's a more mystical world. And when he falls asleep in the real world, real world he wakes up in the other one. And the, the, whole, the whole premise of the story, to spare you all the details, is that essentially what's going on is he's, he's battling sin in both worlds. He's battling, he's battling sin in a world that has already been tainted with sin in the real world. And in this more mystical world, it has not yet been tainted with sin. And he's, he's battling sin in the sense of trying to keep it from being originally tainted by it. And in this sense, I think we can, we can draw on some great parallels between this kind of fictional storytelling and what Paul's trying to do here in the book of Romans. Because as we dive into the text this morning, we'll see that, that one of the biggest features of these few verses at the end of the book is that he, he really ends the same way that he starts the letter. There's not much advantage to reading the back of the book first because it ends much, way the, same, much the same way that it starts. And these last three verses, they sound almost exactly like the first seven verses. That we could start in either place, so to speak. But this also informs the purpose for which he writes and the way that we should read the entire book. In repeating much of what he says at the beginning, he reminds us of the whole point of all of it, which is to be faithful in our ongoing battle with sin in this life for the ultimate good of God's glory. Rightly understood, that's what this whole, this whole book has been about. Every bit of theology and every bit of instruction that Paul has given us in the book of Romans, it has been to help us in our battle with sin through this life so that we can glorify God together as his people. And this is going to be kind of the main idea of our text this morning that I want to show you from our time in the Word as we finish up this journey through the book of Romans. It's this simple idea that God wants to strengthen you to the obedience of faith for the glory of God. We'll break this up and discuss it in several steps here. First, this idea that God wants to strengthen you to the obedience of faith. We have to kind of zoom out and, and look at the big picture of the text here to see this. Paul starts in verse 25 by saying, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, the him being God there, he wants to strengthen you being us, the readers. And then he has these three little according to statements there in the middle, if you'll see. And, and this is what we'll fill in just a little bit. Those are the ways that God intends to strengthen us. But first, what is it that he's strengthening us to? What is the strength specifically for? We get the answer down near the end. Uh, look at the end of verse 26. He finishes the thought and says, to the obedience of faith. And so in other words, the way, the way it's structured here, Paul says that God wants to strengthen us to the obedience of faith. And then everything in between, the three according to statements, those are the ways that he's intending to do that for us through the book of Romans. Um, if you remember... All the way back to the beginning of January, right, of this year when we, we preached the very first sermon out of Romans, this idea of the obedience of faith, it was kind of the main purpose of the letter that, and of Paul's ministry that he lays out there in verse 1-5. Uh, go ahead and just turn back there and keep a finger there maybe, uh, if you would, because we'll reference those first few verses in Romans 1 throughout and, and see the parallels. Uh, we really could just do that all morning because they're really heavily 
But in, in verse one, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, Through whom, being Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Fundamentally, not only to the book of Romans, but also, I'd argue, to, to, the, to the whole Bible and the Christian life, it, it's this very relationship between faith and obedience. And Paul He's used this phrase, the obedience of faith, as somewhat of a guiding phrase at the beginning and now at the end to really encapsulate what he and the rest of the Bible teach about that very thing, which is the relationship between obedience and faith. And I think we see that when Paul, he uses this phrase, obedience of faith, and then, and then fleshes it out through the whole book, there seem to be three different dynamics at play with this. The first would just be the obedience of initial saving faith. Uh, this is how a person is saved. It's by hearing the gospel and believing it. That's what he says in, in verse 10, 17. And it's also what he stated strongly at the end of chapter 3 when he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. But maybe more applicable for those of us who have already trusted in Jesus would be two more ways to understand this. The second would be the ongoing life of faith. This is what he's getting at if you remember in many ways, the, the, the theological kind of thesis statement there in the middle of chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, he says, For in it, talking about the gospel there, the righteousness of God, which is just the way that he saves sinners, he explains that in chapter 3, is revealed from faith for faith, or some might say from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so the idea there is that this, this initial act of saving faith in the person and work of Christ, it spurs us into a life of ongoing faith in the person and work of Christ. Uh, this is really his whole argument in the book of Galatians. You remember we went through that, uh, was that last year? It was, yeah, I guess almost two years ago now. Uh, but, but he makes that argument that we're, we're not saved by faith and then now live by works and stay in by works. We stay in the same way that we got in which is by faith. And namely, it's not just faith now in our ability to, to do it on our own, even with the help of Christ and His Spirit. It is always faith in the person and work of Christ. That's the nature of the ongoing life of the Christian. Then thirdly, once we have those two foundational truths down, we can also see that the, the obedience of faith, it can rightly be understood as the obedience that proceeds from faith. We could talk about the works that come out of faith. Just as strongly as the Bible teaches that salvation, it's by faith and by faith alone, it also teaches that people who have genuine saving faith, they will absolutely bear the fruit of obedience. Remember that the description of the regenerate person in Romans 6, it's, it's one who he no longer presents themselves as slaves to sin. You remember that? But rather as slaves to righteousness. We don't let sin reign in our mortal bodies. We don't obey its passions any longer. We don't bear its fruit anymore. We don't let it have dominion over us because it doesn't. Instead, we now offer ourselves to God who has brought us from life to death, from death to life. And so wrapped up into this little phrase, the, the, the obedience of faith, it's really all of that that Paul has explained to us through the book of Romans. And this is, this is precisely here what Paul says that our God wants to strengthen us in. It's this very obedience of faith and all that, that entails. It's a life of battling our sin by both continuing to trust in the person and work of Christ on our behalf 
and then out of that heart, obeying him and following his will for our lives. It's battling sin, both internal and external, through the obedience of faith that the Bible talks about. But now let's consider the specific ways that the Lord, he wants to actually strengthen us to this kind of life. He wants to strengthen us through the obedience of faith, but how does he want to do so? And the answer to that, as we, we kind of mentioned earlier, it's found in these, these three according to statements in verses 25 and 26. First, it says he's going to strengthen us to the obedience of faith according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ. Very simply, God, he wants to strengthen you through the message of salvation that is completely contingent upon Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. You can't talk about the gospel without talking about Jesus Christ. Amen? I think maybe the clearest place that he's laid this out in the book of Romans was back in chapter 3, uh, verses 21 to 25 there. I'm just going to read that because it's very powerful. He says that now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Charles Spurgeon, he once preached on this idea of uh, of forgetting God from a verse out of Hosea 13 where uh, Yahweh the Lord, he, he essentially just condemns his people for doing that very thing, for forgetting him. And, and Spurgeon makes the argument there, which is very true, that, that we are all unfortunately prone to this, even God's people. And we see this play out throughout the entire Bible where uh, God's people, they repeatedly forget him and what he's done, and a common refrain from the prophets of God is to simply just remember the Lord your God. That's what they tell his people. But Spurgeon said this often happens not so much when things are bad, but when things are good. He talks about how the success of, of business or the absence of pain or general comfortability of life, it causes us to only enjoy God's goodness, but forget God himself. And then he likens this to a husband who's whose wife used to dote on him, but now that he's gotten her rings and beautiful chains and a beautiful home, she now forgets about him and dotes upon those things instead. And far too often we do the same thing in our Christian life. We sit idly by enjoying the goodness of God without actually enjoying God himself. This, of course, is short-sighted because it fails to recognize one of the ways that the, the church of Christ, it's different than any other thing in this world. We play a different game than everyone else because not only do, do we know what the real problems are, we know what the real answers are. Namely, one that is not concerned with, with just temporary pleasures of life, but, but the problem of sin in the world that we all face and the solution to it in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. We live in a world of sin where people not only have no hope, but don't even really understand the core of their problems to understand or begin to understand the right questions to ask about that. We live in a world that has nothing more to look forward to than the next temporary pleasure. And the problem is that all of those things are very fleeting and very hard to come by in all honesty. And then the problem that we have as God's people when we begin to play the world's game of, of temporary pleasure 
and just fake satisfaction is that we soon grow tired, we grow weary with nothing to strengthen us to press on in our fight with sin in a sinful world. We forget God, and as we do so, we try to, try to find worldly, temporary pleasures to help us press on in faithfulness, friends. But God wants to strengthen us in a different way. He wants to strengthen us with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus because it's the reminder of the gospel that not only explains the real problem but offers the real solution. The gospel that says your deepest need is not just simply the next emotional high. It's that you fall immensely short of the glory of God because of your sin. And so in struggling through life, we don't need to try to find a quick hit of pleasure that this world may provide. We need the preaching of the gospel that reminds us that we have everything we could possibly need before holy God in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Secondly, it says that the Lord is going to strengthen us according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings been made known to all the nations. And this one's a little bit more of a mouthful, but we'll, we'll break it down and, and try to see what Paul is explaining here. The first question to ask is simply, what mystery is Paul talking about here? This mystery is not something that was mentioned at the beginning of chapter 1, and so this is unique in the sense that it's something uh, that, that he's, it's added language compared to the way that he began the letter, but it is something that he's already mentioned and talked about in Romans, namely in chapter 11 heavily. Um, if you remember in, in verse eleven twenty five, he talks about this very pointedly saying, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, and then he, he goes on to explain what that mystery is exactly. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. This was a very important verse for understanding the, the sort of theology of Romans and Paul here, and, and really of the whole Bible, how Paul's understanding the Old Testament. And without going back into all the detail, you'll hopefully remember that the idea we talked about here with Israel uh, was that it, he, he was referring to spiritual Israel here, not ethnic Israel. And the significance of that is the concluding fact that there's, there is indeed going to be one people of God that is made of both Jews and Gentiles. One people of God that's now his church, now made up of all nations. That that's been the hope all along, and it's what has now been manifested with the coming of Christ and the, the outpouring of his Spirit upon all humanity. Maybe the more interesting question to ask, though, is in what sense was this a mystery, and in what sense is it being revealed? It's at places like these where, where people, they'll make arguments about uh, the, the relationship between the Old and New Testaments, and they'll say things like, the New Testament makes clear what may be unclear in the Old Testament, or, or make conclusions that we can't really understand the Old Testament without the New Testament, uh, that we essentially need to read our Bibles backwards bringing the teaching of the New Testament to bear on the Old Testament because it's needed to understand what is going on in the Old Testament. But this seems to be contrary to the way that the New Testament authors understand and even use the Old Testament. And Paul is a great example of that. All throughout the book of Romans, Paul has repeatedly brought the Old Testament into his writing, not in a manner of, of explaining the Old Testament text or adding meaning or clarification to it, but of actually relying upon the Old Testament text themselves as support 
and as clarification for what he's trying to say. When Paul feels the need to add support to his argument, he uses the Old Testament. And if we read this verse here carefully, we'll see that the, the point Paul is making is not that the mystery was, was uh, not hidden in the Old Testament for him and the rest of the New Testament to now come and reveal. I think that assumption, it, it's, it's often just a reading of certain hermeneutical uh, commitments, reading those onto the text. He says plainly that the mystery has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and made known to all the nations. The prophetic writings there, of course, are the Old Testament. Remember as well at the beginning of Romans in in the first two verses, this is how he opens up the letter. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. And so if the mystery is not in the Old Testament, but rather the Old Testament itself preached this mystery, this hope for a mixed community of Jews and Gentiles, and in what sense is it being revealed and how? Well, I think the key to understanding this is in the last little phrase there. He says that it has been made known to all the nations. It's not that the mystery was kept in the Old Testament and revealed now in the New Testament, or by Paul in the book of Romans, the fundamental shift that has taken place is that now this mystery, it's made known to all the nations. That's what's changed here. And this is primarily because the gospel and the scriptures themselves, which testify to this mystery, are now being taken to the nations for all people. You'll remember that before the ushering in of the new covenant, uh, these were Israel's scriptures that we're talking about. They belong to Israel. They may have talked about and anticipated and hoped for the salvation of the nations, but the scriptures themselves, they didn't belong to the nations yet. They were just for Israel. And this is the point that Paul makes at the beginning of Romans 9, where he says that that to the Jews belonged, among other things, the giving of the law and the covenants. And then also back in chapter 3, that the biggest advantage to being a Jew was that they were entrusted with the very oracles of God. They were given the scriptures. That was the biggest advantage to being a Jew. They had God's word. But now, the mystery that those scriptures talked about, the preaching of the gospel of Christ, it's been revealed to the nations. It's been made known to all the nations. They've been grafted in by faith and inherited the blessing of being God's people, including the revelation of his word and all that it contains. But having said all of that, let's not lose sight of the main point of the passage here and what this is all intended to, to do for us. It's to strengthen us to a life of faith and obedience. And so how, how does this specifically do that? Well, I think this conversation, it, it strengthens us to further faith by showing us what the nature and the character of the Scriptures are. They're prophetic writings. Think about it. Just the same way that the Scriptures, they were written thousands of years ago in a particular context, but concerned themselves with the fulfillment of the promise of God at a much later date of whom we ourselves now understand this. We ourselves are the manifestation and living proof of God's faithfulness to his promise in the church. Just like that happened, the same dynamic exists in the church today, friends. The nature and character of the Old Testament's preaching about Christ, it's the same nature and character about, of Paul's preaching 
in the book of Romans. It's not bound by first century context. It applies to us today the exact same, and it presents the same exact hope. The Bible, it not only explains the past and the present, it gives us the future. And by looking at God's faithfulness in the past and present, through the testimony of the Bible, we can trust that he will be faithful in the future as well. It's his faithfulness to his word then and now that ensures his faithfulness later as well. And that's what we hold on to as we battle our sin, as we press on in life in a sinful world as well. The third way that the Lord strengthens us to the obedience of faith is according to the command of the eternal God. And what I want to consider here, it's not so much the idea of the, of the command. We've already kind of touched on that. It's the, the obedience of faith that we're talking about and everything that kind of life would demand of us. What, what I'd rather consider is Paul's description of God as the eternal God. This is not a common um, description that Paul's used. In fact, I think this is the only time that, that Paul is referred to the Lord that way in the book of Romans. And so, so why does Paul call out this specific trait right here, God's eternal nature? Well, I think it's to put the commands and the fulfillment of, of the promises in the perspective of who's giving them, right? It's the eternal God. In other words, everything that Paul has talked about in the book of Romans, it, it's not a new plan for God. This has all been God's plan since, since eternity past, and it's what he's sovereignly been bringing about through his son and the message of the gospel. And this is intended to strengthen us by giving us a, I think, firmness and maybe an assurance about this gospel that this all starts with, that we're instructed to constantly go back to, that it existed in the mind of God from eternity past, that its roots go all the way back to eternity with God. Remember also how Paul, he relates the eternal nature of God with what we, what we witness in creation. It was God's eternal power in Romans 1 that was one of the things that Paul says the unbeliever suppresses in their sin. He says, the wrath of God is against unrighteous men who suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul's thought here, he, he, he's essentially saying that it's, it's the sun coming up every morning and going down every evening. It's the seasons coming and going at their appointed time. It's the trees growing leaves in the spring and dropping them in the fall. Year after year after year, these things, they continue, and no one can stop them because the eternal God holds them all in his hand. And creation itself, in this sense, it's a witness to the fact that there exists a God who exists outside of our timeline, outside of our world, making it all spin, so to speak. He holds it all in his hand because he's outside of it. And now consider that and think about that in relation to your life as a follower of Jesus. If all of creation proceeds according to God's plan, then so will we as people. This is the nature and the character of God that's the, the foundation for the promise that all things work together for the good 
of those who love Jesus, that if he began a good work in you, he will surely finish, that if he justified you, he will surely glorify you as well, friends. The Lord, he doesn't just strengthen you by reminding you to trust him and reminding you of how he's already been faithful. He strengthens you by reminding you about who he is. And so as we proceed in this life, when we we wake up and we put our feet on the ground each morning, (laughs) walking into another day of our battles with sin and, and our struggles of life in a sinful world, let's find hope in the fact that just as surely as the sun rises, so will we be clothed in glory as we spend an eternity with God as well. We wouldn't do this text justice if we did not consider one last thought, which is the ultimate purpose for all of it, to not just consider the way in which we are strengthened by God, but the reason for which he is going to strengthen us, which is for his glory. This has been a common theme throughout the book as well, and it's, it's how Paul now ends his letter in verse 27. He says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. It's another similarity between the way Paul starts and ends his letter. In in verse 1, 6, the obedience of faith is to be brought about for the sake of his name among all the nations. It's so that God would be glorified among all the nations that, that this needs to become manifest. With that goal in mind, watch how this idea of the glory of God develops through the entire book of Romans. In Romans 1, that's the goal, but it's also clear that that humanity has not met that goal, right? Sinful humanity has, has spurned God's glory. In verse 21, he says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him. And then in verse 23, it says that they exchanged the glory of God for images of mortal man and animals. But in Romans 2, this is a problem with the very people of God as well, the ones who have God's law. He says in verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations. The very opposite of what is supposed to take place. The purpose for which Israel was set out. And the reason for this is a problem with everyone that's found in 3.23 where he explains that all fall short of the glory of God. But now in Romans 4, the answer begins to be made plain. In 4.20 it says of Abraham that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. In chapter 5, verse 2, we too now can stand to rejoice in the glory of God since we too have been justified by faith and reconciled to God. And we can do this even in the midst of suffering. In chapter 6, we cast off the old sinful man and instead walk in the new life of Christ because as verse 4 puts it, we have been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father just like Jesus Christ his Son was. In chapter 7, it is Thanks be to God alone who will deliver me from this body of death that still wages against the desires of sin and the flesh. Chapter 8, the sufferings of this present day, they're not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us in eternity. That creation itself groans, longing for the ultimate glorification of the children of God. And the great promise is that God will surely glorify those who love him. In chapter 9, we learn about his plan to display the riches of his glory and sovereignly choosing to save sinners. In chapter 10, it is those who don't blaspheme the name of the Lord, but who actually call upon the name of the Lord who will be saved. 
At the end of chapter 11, he is given glory for how he has united both Jew and Gentile and grafted them together as one people. And then in chapters 12 to 15, Paul explains that this life, he explains what this life looks like. He instructs the church to live in unity with one another. And the ultimate goal of that being in 15 verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this idea of God's glory, if you've been paying attention, it's been hanging over every single detail and movement of Paul's thought and theology in the book of Romans. Every single detail of God, of how he's chosen to work, it somehow, some way, comes back to the ultimate purpose of glorifying God, including his desire to now strengthen his church. And so, friends, in your battle with sin, in battling your own sin, and in battling life in a world of sin, be strengthened to press on in faith and obedience, trusting in Christ's work on your behalf, and do so for the glory of God. He alone is worthy, and everything that we do and are is meant to reflect back on Him, to bring honor to His name among all the nations. This was the goal of creation. It was the goal of His people, Israel. It was the reason for sending His Son, and it's the reason that He not only establishes His church, but also sanctifies her so that He can one day gather her to Himself and clothe her with glory and splendor for an eternity with Him. And friends, until then, (laughs) until then, we keep meeting Him in His Word, witnessing His faithfulness in our lives, being strengthened by the testimony of what He's done in Christ so that we can press on in faith until the end. Amen? Amen. Nate, you can come up. We're going to pray. And we'll wrap up here. Lord, we thank you for just once again who you are and everything that you've done, Lord, for us. We thank you that uh, you're not a a God who just simply reacts to us and our sin and our our failures, that you're a God who, since the beginning of time, you've you've set this plan in place that that it's always been designed to happen this way, ultimately for your glorification by making much of your Son in the way that you save sinners. And God, help us as we both look within our own hearts and we, and we still see the, the sinful man waging war in our flesh, but also, Lord, we wake up each day and we, we just go through life in a sinful world. And everything that, that brings and, and means, God, help us to find strength in the things that you have given us, Lord, in the reminder of the gospel, in, in looking back and seeing your faithfulness both in the past and in the present, Lord, and help us to continue to look forward with eyes of hope and faith, seeing the end, and that we would press on in faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for this morning, and we ask that you help our hearts to believe this and live like it's true. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.